You know, with all the layers that I wear on Sunday mornings, you may not have noticed, but I do not exactly possess what you could in any reasonable or any other way call a marathoner's body, and I never have. (laughs) Nevertheless, once upon a time, did you just laugh over there? (laughs) Uh, Nevertheless, once upon a time, I gave it a shot. I started training to run at least one marathon by my mid-30s, but because of the pain in my knees and hips from the constant pounding, uh, eventually gave it up after just a few months. And that's when I learned about sprint triathlon, a half-mile swim, a 25-mile bike ride, and a 10K or a 6.2-mile run. Turns out I'm naturally buoyant, so swimming wasn't a huge problem. I really liked riding my bike, especially downhill. And in shorter distances, say five to seven miles, I was a passable runner. So that's where I put my energy. And although I competed in several sprint triathlons over the next few years and even won a couple for my age and weight, two things in particular stand out to me vividly from my very first race in 1996. The first was this, my inadequate training. I mean, I was in relatively good physical condition, but not mental condition. And when the starter pistol pistol sounded, my adrenaline was just pumping like crazy, and I went out hot. And I spent everything I had in the swim and the ride. There was just no sense at all of pacing myself appropriately. And so when I got off my bike to start the run, I could barely stand. I, in my near, I, I mean, I finished, let's say, I finished the race, but a run has never felt as painful to me or been as slow. In my near delirium, I think I recall actually being passed by several walker-assisted octogenarians who'd just been dropped off for a leisurely stroll by the nearby assisted living facility. Clearly, to run this race with endurance, it would take a whole nother level of mental discipline. The second thing that stands out vividly to me 25 years later was the final stretch, the last quarter mile or so of the run, despite, how, despite the late hour of my return. The course we ran was local, and over the previous months, I'd run it many times, so I was very familiar with the final stretch, but this time, it was different. I'd known there would be some spectators, but I wasn't prepared for the hundreds of people from the town and other race participants, most of whom by now had finished, eaten, showered, and napped, but I was blown away by the number of people there to watch as we stragglers came back bedraggled, but mostly just happy to be nearing the finish. They were cheering, waving flags, clapping, and shouting encouragement and congratulations. It went on down the road into the park, crescendoing into a pretty good roar at the finish line. They made finishing feel like a real accomplishment, and in fact, some ways made it possible. I bring this up. Because today's reading from Hebrews 12 draws on the image of our life in Christ as an endurance race. 
Central to this idea is the communion of saints, the, the great cloud of witnesses all around us that's so memorably enumerated just before this, the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11, which we read last week. Those who finished before us from Abel to Abraham right down through the unnamed heroines and heroes noted at the end of the chapter. They haven't simply disappeared. They're there at the finish line cheering us on, surrounding us with the encouragement and enthusiasm that we need, willing us to do what they did and finish the course. The difference is that a race in a race, the runners are usually competing against each other, whereas in the journeying of God's people, what matters most to each runner is that all the other runners finish the race well, too. Think about how amazing that is. What will it take to run this race with endurance and success? The writer, continuing the athletic imagery, suggests three things in particular. First is this in verse 1 shed weight. This is a word in Greek that in modern terms means to lose weight or to throw off a heavy load. Either way, we must get rid of anything that is slowing us down. Athletes sometimes train wearing weighted vests to build up strength and energy and endurance against the time when they'll be in an actual race. They'll, they'll run without any extra weight encumbering them. But far too many Christians try to run the race of discipleship carrying all kinds of heavy baggage, anxieties about trivial concerns, ambitions for self-advancement, resentments and unforgiveness, or secret greed for their bodily appetites and passions, and so on. You can think of a hundred. In particular, it's possible for sin of one kind or another to get in the way and constrict our movement. Though some translations speak here of sin clinging closely to us, the word in Greek properly means obstructing or constricting. It's like the danger an athlete might face if either the track or their body isn't completely free. Say someone puts a hurdle in the way or they're wearing clothing or shoes inappropriate to the contest. Lauren and I were in the San Diego International Airport on Thursday afternoon waiting for a flight that just kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and I remember sitting there and watching just watching people sitting in the chair and uh, a, a woman probably in her 60s dressed very casually walked past only she was wearing stilettos, I mean high, high heels. And she was in obvious pain. Probably inappropriate for traveling. But that's kind of the imagery here. But that's what sin can be like when Christians tolerate it in their lives or in the community. And she was limping like crazy, by the way, just really struggling. It gets in the way. It, it can trip us up. It can seriously damage either ourselves or our chance of completing the course. The second point is this. This race is a long haul, and you need patience and endurance. There are always some runners who really prefer a, a, a short sprint, or some of them, like me in my first triathlon, faced with a long course, will go way too fast at the start and are exhausted long before the finish. 
Many of us know friends like that too, enthusiastic and eager and tireless in their early days. They soon run out of steam and eventually they've lost all the energy for active discipleship or they're frantically flitting from experience to experience to experience, trying to gin up the excitement of a now inappropriate and immature faith. Give me the person any day who may start a bit more slowly, but who's still there, patiently running the next mile and the next mile and the next, all those years later. The third point is keep your eyes, your imagination, fixed on the finish line and on the one who's at the center of that great cloud of witnesses waiting there to greet you himself. We're to run this race with no eyes for anyone or anything but Jesus. He's the one to whom we run. Jesus, who ran every step of this course before us, who in fact pioneered and perfected the way, opened up the course and brought it to perfect completion. Our task is to follow in his steps. He's made it across the finish line and his encouragement and the thoughts of his welcome and affirmation at the end are the central motivation for us to continue in hope and faith and patience. We are to contemplate exactly, that's the language that it uses, contemplate exactly what Jesus went through in his own patient journey and to realize that we, despite real pain and suffering and disappointment and struggle, have mostly had an easy time of it. By comparison, he kept his eye on what was waiting for him. He looked right through the cross to the joy of eternal community with the ones he loves. It was for this joy that Jesus endured the cross. And now, as a result, he's given the high and glorious position of honor at God's right hand. Hebrews is keenly aware that its original readers, as well as Christians throughout the millennia, stand in danger of being weary with all they face, temptation, suffering, persecution, intimidation, and mockery from their contemporaries, their neighbors, and even their former friends. Jesus endured murderous opposition from sinful men and thus was in the same kind of position these readers found themselves in. We've never been asked or expected to endure something our master has not first endured. On our behalf. And like the long, hard pull up a hill, in the middle of a long-distance race, we must take the next step and the next step and the next step and keep going, reminding ourselves continually of the one who blazed this trail in the first place and what he endured for us. That, we, that way we will be kept from becoming worn out completely. And as is so often the case in the Christian life, it's reminding yourself of truth rather than trying to conjure up feelings of some kind or another. That's the way to keep going in faith and endurance. It's one of the key reasons we come back to the Lord's table every week, so that we're reminded of what Jesus himself endured on our behalf. Why is this so important? Because no one, no one lives a frictionless life. The truth is that suffering and hardship come to everyone. It's part of every life, and it's difficult to bear. 
Yet it's not quite so bad when it can be seen as having some purpose, some meaning. The, the author has just made the point that Christ was able to endure his suffering on the cross because of the joy set before him. His suffering had meaning. And for those who are in Christ, suffering can also be transformed through the cross. We have a Savior who suffered, and we, we know he doesn't lead us into meaningless suffering. He doesn't lead us into meaningless suffering. The writer makes that point in verse 7 in a way that's really difficult for us to wrap our brains around. Suffering can be evidence, not that God doesn't love us, but rather that he loves us very much. And for Christians, this suffering is rightly understood only when seen as loving fatherly discipline, God correcting and directing us. Believers are sons and daughters and so are treated as just that. This isn't a popular or easy idea. Culturally, we're in turmoil these days about discipline. And I think it's because we misunderstand it. We've witnessed firsthand hand the deleterious effects when a child grows up learning that authority belongs only to the person who can hit the hardest and hurt the most. Those children often translate that into their own lives by becoming the one who gains power by being the most domineering or even violent. We've seen so much of this. In fact, that many people in the West now feel it's wrong to discipline children at all, especially in physical ways. And at the same time, if we have eyes to see, we're aware of how, how dangerous or just unpleasant children are who've never learned limits, who've never rightly discovered the meaning of no, backed up with appropriate restraint. Indulged children on the one hand and ignored children on the other are a menace and a nuisance to everyone else and are unlikely to grow up as happy, well-rounded people able to sustain a flourishing adult life. Clearly, some kind of discipline as one aspect of genuine love and care is vital. And that's the key, isn't it? An aspect of genuine love and care. Parenthetically, this is vitally important to helping us understand this passage. Discipline and punishment are not interchangeable words. They're fundamentally and etymologically different. The words punishment and punitive come from the old French word punir, the imposition of a penalty as retribution for an offense. And there may be some instances in which punishment is entirely appropriate. The word discipline, however, is different. Discipline comes from, guess what word? Disciple. A word that means to follow. And here's, this was an absolutely sobering discovery for Lauren and me as parents. When we are disciplined, our disciplining our children, we are saying to them literally, follow me. Follow me. Now, the question of what kind of discipline is appropriate within a loving home relationship, and, and that will vary from person to person, from family to family, and from culture to culture as an aspect of genuine love and care. But if a parent leaves a child bereft of formation, 
lacking discipline, without checking and correction, we have to begin to wonder if they're acting as parents at all, if they genuinely love and care for them, and if they're ultimately seeking their flourishing. Here's what I mean. When our sons, Aaron and Adam, now 36 and something, 37 and 35, yes, okay. I mean, our, our kids, their, their names are Aaron and Adam, right? Okay. And then Craig. Yes. I know you're watching at home, Craig. Happy birthday. Anyway, when our sons, Aaron and Adam, were in high school and middle school, respectively, they had a youth pastor who, of course, didn't have teenage children of his own, who said often, discipline your children as if they're someone else's. In other words, the things you find funny or acceptable in your children's friends, you should find funny and acceptable in them. And those of us who are parents can all probably stand to be a little kinder and more patient and a little more understanding and forgiving of our own children. But discipline your children as if they're someone else's entirely misses a fundamental truth. They're not someone else's. They're mine. Not in the sense of possessions, but in the sense of stewardship. And I'm sure this isn't a newsflash to any parent. I simply don't have anywhere near the same level of love and care and responsibility for other people's children that I have for my own. Sorry. <laughs> and that's the point of verse 8. It says, if you are left without discipline, you are illegitimate children and not sons and daughters. If we're genuinely God's daughters and sons, then we should expect that God will treat us as his, bringing us up with appropriate discipline. The writer traces the roots of this notion to the book of Proverbs, quoting in verse 5 from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Way back in the early history of Israel, this emerged as one understanding of what was going on when God's people were suffering. The troubles they underwent were supposed to function as discipline. They were allowed, they were allowed in order that Israel might be trained to higher standards of faith, hope, and obedience. The prophet Jeremiah, for example, whom we read today, saw the Babylonian exile very much in this context. So great was the father's desire that they returned to him. According to the writer of Hebrews, this is still the case today. It doesn't mean that we should ever make the mistake of blaming God for everything bad as though there were no evil forces out there that had and still have the power to wreak havoc and bring suffering to our lives. Not all suffering is discipline. Satan's pleasure is our harm. His pleasure is your children's harm. And in a bent and fallen world, these are very present realities. But it still comes as a shock to many Christians that there lies ahead of them a life in which God, precisely because he is treating us as sons and daughters, will refuse to indulge or ignore us. 
He will refuse to let us get away forever with rebellion or folly or sin or stupidity. He has always, he has, he has ways of alerting his children to the fact that they should either pause to think or, or turn and follow or maybe simply just get down on their knees and repent. The truth of verse 11 then is offered so that we can cling to it when things are hard. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I can tell you from experience that this is true. And so is this. There is inevitable suffering and sorrow in ordinary human life. Suffering and sorrow that was shared by the man of sorrows as he identified thoroughly with us. A point Hebrews makes very forcefully in chapter 5 verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I'm especially struck here by verse 8. Son though he was, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Wait. Jesus needed to learn obedience through suffering? Well, as with any passage, context is critical for understanding this. Big picture, this whole epistle explains to the Hebrews their own scriptures, hence the name. The writer takes them from what they knew, the law of Moses, to what they hadn't known before, the revelation of how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament and brought them into a new covenant with God. Specifically, Hebrews 4.14-5.10 4, deals with Jesus' qualifications to serve as the one and only heavenly high priest for all people, for all time. Here and elsewhere in Hebrews, we learn that Jesus was both fully divine and fully human, and that he remained without sin while experiencing every human temptation and weakness. Jesus left his Father's right hand, entered time, and experienced for himself ordinary human life from birth to adulthood to death. Learning and suffering and death are fundamental to life and to experience for all people. And God ensured that his own son would be no exception. Jesus, quote-unquote, learned obedience, not in the sense that he was prone to disobedience, but in the sense that he fully entered human life. As a child, Jesus obeyed his parents. As an adult, Jesus obeyed the law and fulfilled all righteousness. He knew what obedience was prior to his incarnation, but he learned obedience on earth by experiencing it, by putting his hand to it. That's where the Hebrew word for knowing comes from, yod, which means hand. As the divine Son of God, Jesus didn't have to suffer. But as the Son of Man, suffering was required to learn obedience. The Greek word used here for suffered implies enduring an unpleasant, challenging process that ultimately transforms the sufferer. Jesus chose to endure an unpleasant, challenging process because it was the will of his Father for his brief time on earth. 
after that process, Jesus had been, it says here, made perfect. But it's important to note that perfect here means complete, as in finishing a full course of training or education, or in Jesus' case, finishing an altogether righteous human life and having a complete understanding of human frailty and suffering. In other words, he gets us. It was Christ's obedience coming through suffering that qualifies him to be our eternal high priest. And having been perfected, not morally, but in, his relation, or, but in relation to his ministry as our Savior, Jesus is qualified now, it says in, in, in chapter 12, verse 2, to be the founder and perfecter of our faith and to become, it says in chapter 5, verse 9, the source of all eternal salvation. Uh, let me start that again. The source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Thanks be to God. And even with that incredible example, it's possible for Christians to see it all as meaningless, to fret and fume as though everything has just gone wrong and to just give up and quit the race. And some do. Some members of our congregation have. But again and again, when we find ourselves thwarted or disappointed or opposed or vilified or hurting and suffering, we may, if we're listening in faith, be able to hear the gentle, wise voice of the Father urging us to follow, to follow him more closely, to trust him more fully, and to love him more deeply. That is, after all, precisely what discipline is for. And then, just maybe, we'll be able to run this race with no eyes for anyone or anything but Jesus. Him to be the one to whom we run. Jesus, who ran every step of this course before us with endurance. Who, in fact, pioneered the way, opened up the course, and brought it to perfect completion so that we could run it with endurance too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.